0: Welcome to Faith and Family, a radio outreach of Family Life Center International. And now from Greenville, South Carolina, here's your host, Steve Wood. Hello, this is Steve Wood, and welcome to Faith and Family. want to thank you for joining us today. Our last two broadcasts on Faith and Family have been a two-part broadcast highlighting my very first Catholic talk on marriage, entitled Our Marriage Covenant and Our Covenant with God. Today, I want to talk to you about the greatest threat to the sacrament of matrimony in 500 years. The threat I am going to describe, little later in this show, is as great a danger to marriage as the contemporary push for legal recognition of same-sex marriage. Now, I hope your eyebrows went up. I'll even go a step further. Perhaps the threat I'm going to be talking about today is even greater than the push for the legal recognition of same-sex marriage. Why? Because the attack on marriage that I'm going to be describing today comes from within, and those kind of attacks are always the most serious. I'd never imagined this 24 years ago when I entered the church. As you heard, I hope, in the previous two broadcasts, It was over the issues of the indissolubility of marriage and how do you deal with those who have been divorced and civilly remarried outside the church, and how John Paul II's the role of the Christian family in the modern world played such a key part in my conversion. Well, what I'm going to try to do today is briefly summarize what I gave you in the previous two broadcasts how our marriage covenant is related to our covenant with God, and then I want to show you that what I discovered in my pilgrimage to the Catholic Church 24 years ago, and through the writings of St. John Paul II in the role of the Christian family in a modern world, these questions and issues are directly related to the greatest threat against the sacrament of matrimony in 500 years. Years. But let's begin with how our marriage covenant and our covenant with God are related, just by way of very quick summary. Let's start at the beginning of the Bible. Genesis chapter 2, the very first time the name Yahweh is used, which is the covenant name for God. God in Genesis 2 was making a covenant with Adam and Eve. And surprise, 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 before you even hit the end of the same chapter, Genesis 2, What's instituted for the first time? The marriage covenant. Let's just jump right in the middle of the scripture somewhere, like the Gospel of John, where Jesus has come to earth to institute a new divine covenant, the New Testament. And what was the first miracle during Jesus' three-year new covenant ministry? His miracle was changing water to wine At a wedding. The wedding was the setting, so to speak, for Jesus's first miracle. Why is that? Because of the transforming power of the Holy Spirit and the new covenant is going to have an immense effect, a profound effect on the marriage covenant. So again, in the middle of the Bible, you find our marriage covenant and our covenant with God related. Let's turn to the end. In fact, the very final chapters of the book of Revelation describing the second coming of Christ. And how is that described? Well, it's described as Jesus as a bridegroom coming for his church, described as a bride. In other words, the final fulfillment in human history of the divine covenant is described using elaborate marital imagery. So you have the beginning, the middle, and the end of the Bible, all focused on the relatedness between our covenant with God and our marriage covenant. Now, conversely and very seriously, the Old Testament prophets described Israel's apostasy from the divine covenant. That means unfaithfulness to God is what apostasy means. The prophets used the word adultery to describe Israel's apostasy. Why? Well, since the marriage covenant and the divine covenant are so interrelated, the best way of showing apostasy to Israel was to try to reflect on marital unfaithfulness, which is adultery. Now, that's the background of the entire Scriptures, and I mentioned in the previous two broadcasts, in my pilgrimage to Catholicism, I developed a very keen interest in the after-effects of Christian divorce and remarriage after observing the damaging impact that marital breakdown was having on teens in my youth group. So, Uh, I began studying marriage, divorce, and remarriage from a wide variety of uh, Christian authors and a little bit dangerously started studying what the early church fathers had to say about all this. But what became unmistakably clear was that the early church taught that a valid or true Christian marriage was indissoluble. And what the early church was doing was simply basically echoing, faithfully echoing, the teaching of Jesus. Jesus said, quote, everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. That's from Luke 16, verse 18. Now, why does a divorce from a valid marriage followed by remarriage become adultery? Why, why is that? Well, it's rather simple. If it's a valid marriage, you are married until death do you part. So, the remarried person, even though they have entered a second marriage, is still bound to to be faithful to their first spouse until that spouse dies. So if they are married to a second person, they're being unfaithful to their marriage covenant, and hence they are guilty of the sin of adultery. Now, I discovered this as a Protestant pastor, and I agonized, what do I do with my beliefs? Because they obviously weren't shared in a very widespread manner. And then one morning, as I described in the earlier broadcast, I was preaching from the Old Testament prophet Hosea, a sermon on marriage, and God used Hosea's failed marriage, in fact, to show Israel how they had failed in the divine covenant. God told Hosea to go marry a harlot And bring her back to try to be faithful to himself, and she proved unfaithful. And it was just almost a bizarre circumstance in earthly marital terms, but God was trying to show the unfaithfulness amongst God's people. Now, I preached that sermon, and I sat down for an offertory. You heard me relate this, but um, this was truly a turning point in my life, and basically everything for Faith and Family Radio and the Family Life Center International came out of the next five minutes, because at that point, I sensed a very direct and immediate exhortation from God, you're not going to do this, and by this, I'm referring to we were having... Presbyterians called communion or the Lord's Supper. God says, you're not doing this. And I knew why. I knew why, because the divine covenant and the marriage covenant are deeply interrelated. And communion, co-union, receiving this, we call it, uh, as Catholics, a sacrament, uh, uh, a divine institution perhaps, what Presbyterians would call it, but regardless, receiving a sacrament of oneness between God and his people, that's what the Lord's Supper as Protestants, that's what the Eucharist as Catholics believes is going on. This, this union, this covenant between God and his people can't be celebrated while at the same time The oneness of marriage covenant is in contradiction to that. Because if you're committing adultery, you're living in unfaithfulness to your marriage covenant. And if you're living in unfaithfulness to your marriage covenant, you can't come with that contradiction to these two things that are so closely related. And by giving the Lord's Supper as a pastor to people in illicit marriages, I would be participating in that contradiction. So I stood up and walked to the communion table and just apologized to my congregation, said, Sorry, I'm unprepared to administer the Lord's Supper today. And of course, everybody was wondering, What in the world is wrong with our pastor? I walked out of the sanctuary and was followed by the elders of my church, and I explained my reasons. And they were very kind to me, but they kindly informed me that my time was over at that congregation. And even more, I knew that it was permanently over for me as a Protestant pastor, and I didn't really know where to go. That next week, following my sermon on marriage from the prophet Hosea, was one of the loneliest in my Christian life. Uh, Here I was. I was a pastor, but in a sense, I didn't sense belonging to any church. So here I was, a, a pastor in kind of an ecclesiastical no-man's land, and I was desperate, to tell you the truth. I wanted somebody to share my beliefs that were so clearly taught by Jesus, were so clearly taught by the early church fathers, but I was just longing for somebody who was living to share my beliefs that the early church so clearly had. So in a sense of uh, desperation, I pulled off of my bookshelf an unread copy of Pope John Paul II's The Role of the Christian Family in the Modern World, and I must say I was astounded from what I read. He expressed such tender care for divorced persons who have remarried, and yet he insisted that they refrain from Eucharistic communion while their state in life contradicts the covenant union between Christ and the church. Here it was laid out clearly and charitably in black and white. And this was particularly what I'm referring to was section 84 of his apostolic exhortation written in 1981 of the role of the Christian family in a modern world. And it was three pages, section 84 From the Role of the Christian Family in the Modern World, after 12 years of study in the Early Church Fathers, reading widely Christian books on marriage, divorce, and remarriage, and reading the Early Church Fathers, it was three pages of section 84 that if I was an Olympic judge, I would say this is a perfect 10. And I saw the teaching of Jesus faithfully reverberated in the 20th century, while the 20th century was just falling away from the truth that Jesus came to earth to teach about marriage. St. John Paul II so clearly explained why the divorced and remarried outside the church can't receive communion. Yet, while faithfully upholding the marital indissolubility that the church teaches, he tenderly, compassionately, and charitably reached out to the divorce and remarried. And I had read widely on these subjects, but nothing approached the level of faithfulness to Christ coupled with the balance of Christian charity. And so I am so profoundly grateful to these three pages to which I owe my Catholic life, section 84 the role of the Christian family in the modern world. You know, I'm not sure about this. I have no way of knowing for sure. But I think that I may be the world's only convert to Catholicism because of section 84, that portion of St. John Paul II's exhortation dealing with the question of communion to the divorced and civilly remarried. I have to take a deep breath because it's with um, profound sadness that I have to share with you today that some are suggesting, not outright, but definitely in so many words, some are suggesting that we jettison this teaching of St. John Paul II. In fact, the very section 84 which led me to the Catholic Church is the precise section that some leaders would like to ditch. I was so disheartened to hear that a German Catholic cardinal proposed that the church and next fall's Vatican Family Synod modify its stance on giving communion to the divorced and civilly remarried. Now, I don't know if you're aware, but doing such a thing would effectively undermine the entire basis of Catholic moral teaching on marriage and sexuality, and here's, here's why. This is just the starter. The Catechism of the Catholic Church, section 2384, and as we approach this family synod, or if you maybe write a very respectful letter to a cardinal that you may know, Section 2384 of the Catechism of the Catholic Church describing civil remarriage says the following, and I quote, the married spouse is then in a situation of public and permanent adultery, unquote. Translate that again. If you're married in a valid marriage, until death do you part, and then you divorce from a valid marriage and are civilly remarried, you are therefore being unfaithful to the spouse, the first spouse you are still bound to, and hence, as the catechism says, you are in a situation of public and permanent adultery. St. Paul says the same thing in different words in his epistle to Romans, Romans chapter 7 verses 2 and 3, where St. Paul says, quote, a married woman is bound by law to her husband as long as he lives. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive, unquote. And the Greek tense of this verb which says, she will be called, indicates an active and ongoing sense in bearing the title of adulteress, because it's not just an act of remarriage, but the entire state of civil remarriage from a valid Christian marriage is living in a public and permanent, ongoing, active state of adultery. Now, the German cardinal who suggested Uh, this change of uh, giving communion to the uh, divorced and civilly remarried outside the church, that if they undertake a period of repentance, then they should be allowed to partake of communion without a change of lifestyle. And this suggestion overlooks the fact that being civilly remarried is an ongoing state of adultery, and a period of repentance can't change the objective fact of a continuing grave sin. Now, listen carefully. If the church were to give communion to the divorced and civilly remarried, it would be giving communion to persons living in a situation of actively breaking the sixth commandment. Okay? That's A. B. Opening communion to those living in adultery would logically lead to giving communion to those living in fornication and those committing sodomy, since these are also sins against the sixth commandment. We're talking about something utterly serious here, and on the very point of the cultural wars could be being fought not just outside the church regarding the push for the legal recognition of same-sex marriage, but look what's happening inside the church. And in many ways, this is far more dangerous, or at least as dangerous. So, to me, the relevant question is, why would anyone suggest changing the relevant, wise, charitable, and balanced practices put forth by St. John Paul II in 1981. Well, some people say that's out of date. Why is it out of date? Well, some are saying because of the dramatic rise in the rates of divorce and remarriage. Well, such a claim is not true. Take, for example, the United States of America. Currently, we have the number 12 spot among the 20 countries with the highest rates of divorce in the world. So we're just about in the middle of the most divorce-prone nations in the world. Little history. The U.S. divorce rate stayed under three per thousand until the 1960s, during which, as you know, Uh, No-fault divorce legislation was legalized, the pill was widely accepted, and the damaging effects from both fell upon marriages, and then the divorce rate started climbing rather rapidly. In the 1970s, the divorce rate peaked at 5.3 divorces per 1,000, and finally ending in 1981, it peaked. The divorce rate in the United States peaked in the very same year that St. John Paul II wrote his apostolic exhortation on the Christian family. And the divorce rates in the United States, again, we're right in the middle of the most divorce-prone countries in the world, so we're a good example. The divorce rates have been declining ever since 1981 the year that St. John Paul II issued the role of the Christian family in the modern world. So to say that the role of the Christian family, and that includes section 84, the most balanced and faithful treatment of what you do and how you charitably uh, deal with people who have been divorced and civilly remarried, to say it's out of date is ludicrous because it was written in the very peak of the crisis. Rather than calling his exhortation out of date, it would be much more accurate to call it prophetic and timely. I would certainly urge that the cardinals who meet next fall at the Synod Of the family would reflect ever so deeply on the pope of the family's treatment, the role of the Christian family in the modern world, just been declared a saint. To me, it's scandalous to have a pope who brought the ancient Christian teaching of the family That's been faithfully preserved in the Catholic Church century after century, but then he brought it to the modern world. The role of the Christian family in the modern world, and then the author of that work recently proclaimed a saint in the Catholic Church, and then to turn around six months later and to dump it? No. It's just not right. We don't need to invent something new. It's been given to us. You know, you know, they they, they say that, um, you know, you live in America and you just don't appreciate how great our country is. And the same thing people have taught me about converts to the Catholic Church. Sometimes you can just take so many things for granted that you should so deeply appreciate and just be actively thankful for, and you know, that goes for the role of the Christian family in the modern world. This was a gem delivered in the 20th century at the peak of the marital crisis in the modern world. And rather than dumping it and changing sections 84 of the role of the Christian family in the modern world, we need to go back to it. You know, I dare say there's a lot of people listening to me right now who have never even read it. Here's a pope who has written an exhortation to modern families and bishops and cardinals and priests and deacons and apostolic movements and how to deal with a family. You know, in that exhortation, The Role of the Christian Family in a Modern World, section 20 St. John Paul II said this, to bear witness to the indissolubility and fidelity of marriage is one of the most precious and most urgent tasks of Christian couples in our time. To bear witness to the indissolubility and fidelity of marriage is one of the most precious and most urgent tasks of Christian couples in our time. You know, I'm not one for petitions and sending out emails to all your friends and this and that, but you know, maybe it's time to contact a cardinal you know who will be meeting in Rome next fall and urge them as a married couple to bear witness to the indissolubility and fidelity of marriage by reaffirming section 84 of the role of the Christian family in a modern world. Till next time, this is Steve Wood with Faith and Family. Faith and Family is a radio outreach of Family Life Center International. Visit us online at FamilyLifeCenter.net. To order a CD copy of today's broadcast, order online at www.FamilyLifeCenter.net.